spending this some time this year, and particularly this summer, kind of doing a book-by-book overview of the Bible. I'm, I'm, um, I'm pretty pumped about this. I, I love this idea, um, because I think a lot of times we don't see the Bible as this coherent story, that there's this one huge story written over thousands of years by all kinds of different authors. Um, we don't see the grand narrative of what God's telling us and, and showing us. The Bible's made up of 66 different books uh, written by numerous authors. 39 of the books make up what's called the Old Testament. 27 books compile the New Testament, are compiled into the New Testament. Uh, the two testaments tell God's story. Uh, the Old Testament lays kind of the foundation um, for Jesus coming to earth, and then the New Testament reveals Jesus in all his glory and um, tells the good news of what he's done for us and and what his kingdom is all about. Um, the Old Testament is generally divided into four groups. Um, there's lots of different ways to divide it. But the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are called um, what's called the book, the books of the law, or um, also referred to as the Pentateuch. If you uh, five books, it sounds um, way cooler than it really is. Um, the books of Joshua through Esther are considered history books, and then they're followed by Job through the Song of Songs which that's considered wisdom literature. And then the Testament ends with the prophetic books. And there's major and minor prophets, but basically they're books of prophecy. And then the New Testament consists of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The first four are known as the Gospels. And then there's a transition book called Acts of the Apostles, which is really a transition uh, to describe and uh, what God has done in the Gospel. And then... Um, the, the development of the church and the beginning of the church. That's followed by um, Romans through Jude, which are known as the epistles or the letters to various churches and individuals. And then that leads finally to the very last book, which is Revelation, which tells us the whole story and the end of the story. So um, we're going to kind of note the overarching themes of each book in the Bible and how it fits in God's grand story. And um, I think that's important. Sometimes we get really busy looking at the fruit on a particular tree and and we miss the beautiful goodness of a huge orchard, right? And and scripture's this orchard. It's this gorgeous stuff, story. And, and so we can get, we can concentrate on on just a small part of it and miss the beauty of the whole thing. Um, I uh, I think that's easy for us to do. To you know, the forest and trees thing is is a is something that that's really easy for me. Matter of fact, preaching on the on this book was horribly hard for me. Like writing the sermon this week was like ah, um, it was really really hard because. I love getting lost in all the little details, right? And I'm a rabbit trailer from the beginning of time, right? So I, I, I get on, on, uh, on Google and I, I'm starting to Google something and then some like, oh yeah, that leads to something else and that leads to something else. And pretty soon I'm, you know, I know all about 
the ancient kings of Mesopotamia and know nothing about uh, getting a spa cover for our new spa, um, <laughs> a new cover for our spa. So I, I'm like that, right? So, so this will help us to generalize. And, and Eric always said, I think you could preach on a, a, you know, a six words, but if I give you six chapters, you go crazy. So he's right. Um, so anyway, we're going to, we're going to spend some time uh, talking about the the book of Genesis, first of all. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It begins with creation. You have to begin somewhere to tell God's story, so you might as well begin at the beginning. Um, but I want you to note something about that. Um, God is present in the beginning. Even though there's nothing, there's emptiness, there's void, God is beginning less. So he doesn't begin somewhere. He doesn't end somewhere. Um, he always is, always was, and always will be. He doesn't, he's not like us. He's not a a creature. He's not a created being. He is. Um, he's present. He's in existence. And so God comes and he speaks into the void. He speaks into emptiness, into the nothingness. And when he does that, he's not alone. He's present, but he's present in three persons. They work intimately together and they interweave their efforts seamlessly and so that God's will is done. Jesus is there. He's the Word. The Spirit is there. The Spirit hovers over the darkness and the deep, and God creates in the middle of all that. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. So notice who's there, right? God is there, the Creator, the the Father, and the Son is there as the voice, the Word of God. We, we often hear Jesus referred to throughout Scripture as the Word of God. The Word is present. It's the power by which God creates. And then the Spirit is there hovering around, present. And then out of that, God said. God said. God said, let there be. And there was. God speaks into uh, speaks um, into nothing, and He creates life. And over six days, He creates all that we see and know, including us. I, I love that. There's a beautiful methodology to how God does this, by the way. And there's also uh, great poetry. I, I'm a poet. Some of some of you don't know that. Um, some of you um, would read some of my poetry and say it's really not that good, Rod. But I, I, I love to write poetry, and I love simile and picture and metaphor, and, and the way that God describes what he has done is beautiful poetry. It's, it's, it's poetry that if you actually look at it deeply and carefully, you see how, um, what a delightful way that he uh, describes what he does. He creates containers, first of all, 
right? And then he fills those containers. So the, he creates heaven and earth, and then he fills the heaven and earth with light. He creates the sea, and he fills it with fish. He creates the uh, heavens, and he fills them with birds. And, and he creates land, and he fills it with animals. He, he, he has this uh, symmetry that, as he describes it all. And then he creates his crowning creation, Adam and Eve, and he creates them from dust and builds them for community with each other and for community with him. And unlike all the other creatures, he gives them souls. Their spirit and his spirit commune. He creates them to rule over all his creation. And he delights in what he has made and he declares it good. And then he rests after, de- after the creation of mankind, and he says when he creates man, it is very good. Like, it's outstanding. <clears throat> For those wrestling with how God did it, and how long a day is, and if you're searching to find all the ways that science has refuted Scripture, and that Bible refutes science... Please know your place. Please begin to understand who you are. You're a creature. You're not the creator. You're the recipient of God's creative power. You're not the one who self-creates. The Bible isn't going to explain to you the nuts and the bolts of the process because it is not possible for your brain to understand it. If God would explain it, and he certainly could, what he did and how he did it, you would disappear. It would overwhelm you. It's not possible for a creature to understand all those intricacies, all that stuff that forms life and how it's given us. The really important thing is to remember that God did it. God created. God made it. God maintains it. He controls it. It's his. It's his creation. There aren't gazillions of Bob Ross-style happy little accidents that led us um, to sitting here this morning, right? It doesn't just happen by accident. There's an intentionality. There's, there's a, a desire on God's behalf to create something beautiful and wonderful that he takes delight in. He creates, loves, and maintains his creation. We need to humble ourselves We have to remember that we're a speck on a speck on a speck, right? I mean, think about the magnitude of the universe and then our little ball out here in the middle of one of the little galaxies and the middle of this Milky Way, which is like a, like there's universes of universes in some ways we become this almost nothing. But God loves you and delights in you and created you, and made you for his purpose. And he considers you the crowning aspect of all that he's made. This is the picture of the earth rise taken from the moon. 
That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That ball, millions of us, billions of us on that little ball, spinning out in space. And God loves you. (laughs) And God thinks about you. And you belong to him. And he delights in you. It's hard to humble ourselves sometimes, right? We get arrogant. We, we start thinking we can do stuff. We start thinking that we're something really, really beyond special and that we have capabilities and strength, and, and we have some because they're God-given gifts. Somebody took that photograph, right? The astronaut took the photograph. It's amazing the things that we accomplish that God allows us to do, that God calls us to do. So it's hard for us to stay humble. It's hard for us to stay small. We start thinking of ourselves way differently than we ought to. And God takes Adam and Eve, these, these, the father and mother of all, and he settles them in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect place, a beautiful place, a place where he communes with them, where he spends time with them. It has one tree in it that may not be eaten of. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The potential for evil is present. We're created to choose. God did not make us robots, despite all this stuff that we... Like God doesn't make robots. He makes us into intricate people who are able to choose. Because if God made us into robots, then we say, Yes, we love you, God. You know... I mean, if I hold a gun to Kathy's head and say, do you love me? I can't really be dependent that it's for sure that she does when she says she does, right? Because it's just coercion. It's just, it's just force. God doesn't do that. And God doesn't make robots who just say, yes, I believe in you. Yes, you're wonderful. Yes, you're cool. Because we can make a robot like that. Matter of fact, some of us have, right? Um, we like those little apps that tell us wonderful things about ourselves every day, right? How great we are. Yeah. Not so much. God creates the space where we can choose. He gives us a will. And Satan, a fallen angel, challenges God, is cast out of heaven, and he comes to Eve in the form of a snake and invites her to believe that God is holding out on her and on Adam. He says to Adam and Eve, he tells them that, uh, he tells Eve that you can be just like God. God's holding out on you. He's not giving you everything. If you had knowledge of good and evil, you would be just like God. And boy, we liked that idea, and we still do. And Eve loved that idea. Hmm. Maybe God is holding it. Here's this God who's done nothing but give them gracious, beautiful gifts and wonderful things and asked only of them to have relationship with him and to look at the beauty of what he's made and and maybe he's holding out. We could be God. And then they become 
he tells them that they can become like God if they eat this forbidden fruit. And Eve eats it and other, offers Adam the fruit as well. And everything changes. Suddenly there's fear and there's shame. They hide. They blame others. They blame each other. They blame Satan. The relationship with God is darkly, deeply, permanently, it seems, damaged. They're banished from the garden. You see, if you want to be your own God, you can be. You can make that choice, but then you have to take responsibility for your choice. You don't get away with not being responsible for your choice. My dad used to say, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins, right? God God gives us a lot of freedom, but there are consequences if we hurt each other or if we... uh, cause destruction or we cause pain or we sin against each other there's truth there it's it's hard for us to have to realize that now we have to take responsibility for our actions and they wander out into creation that instead of delighting them now causes them pain and suffering and more importantly death sin Their sin leads to death. God's beautiful creation is decimated. Satan seems to have won. He's corrupted what God has made. He takes joy in that, I'm sure. He's got God in a bind. If he destroys what he's made, then Satan wins. If God doesn't destroy it, then God's a liar. But God isn't finished. Darkness doesn't win. We have this beautiful verse in Genesis 3.15 where God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you, will, and you shall bruise his heel. It's, it's the reality that Satan will do his damage. He will attempt to destroy God's great work. He will bruise the heel, which is a picture of what he does, causing Jesus to die. But he will crush the head of the snake. God immediately promises to make things right. He is promising to send his son to destroy all that Satan has done. He acknowledges that Jesus will die, but that Satan, his work and death itself will be crushed. God hates sin. He will destroy it. He does not countenance it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't hang out with it. It's not okay with him. But he loves his creation. He loves us and he promises to make things right. There are real consequences to Adam's fall. Evil's real. Adam and Eve have kids, Cain and Abel, and Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. Cain sets up his own kingdom, and there's constant conflict and war as the nations slowly develop and grow. Over many years, the population grows. Sin is rampant. Everyone is God, and when everyone is God, no one follows God, and God chooses to destroy what he's made. He finds Noah, who's a righteous man, who's obedient to God. Noah builds an ark. 
because God commands it to them. Not when there's a bunch of rain clouds forming and when it looks like it could rain. No, when everybody's laughing at him and mocking him. Like, really? What are you doing? Building an ark? Being saved from what? A flood? He builds the ark and he and his family are on it with animals of all kinds and they survive and when the ear, when the earth is washed clean and Lot is rescued God makes a covenant with him but despite the rescue and the promise of God Noah and his three sons immediately fall back into sin it seems like humanity is incapable of living righteous lives We just can't do it. We kill, we destroy, we build empires, we use power, we are corrupt. We do all we can to usurp God and his ways. We insist on being our own gods. Various tribes and nations gather together and they build this huge tower to heaven, the Tower of Babel, and and they consolidate their power and they stand against God and then God destroys their tower and their power and their work and confuses their language and scatters them throughout the earth. God searches again for a righteous, righteous, a righteous man, anyone who is righteous. And he finds Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. God calls Abram and makes a covenant with him. There are two parties to any covenant. God and Abram are the parties to this covenant. Abram very quickly fails to keep his part of the covenant. He doubts God's power. He takes matters into his own hand. He lies to Pharaoh about his wife. He, he doubts that God can make a great nation from, from him, seeing he has no heirs. His wife, Sarah, is unable to bear him any children, so he sleeps with her servant, Hagar, and Ishmael is born. Adam falls into the trap of being his own God. If God can't do what God promises in the time frame that I have laid out for God to do it in, I'll do it for him. Sound familiar? (laughs) Is that kind of how we are? If I don't get what I want when I want it, I'll do whatever I have to do to get what I need, what I'm sure I need. But God is at work keeping his promises because God always keeps his promises because it's not possible for him to not keep his promises. Despite Hagar and Ishmael, God is at work and he makes Abram laugh when he tells him that he will father a son, Isaac, in his old age. Sarah laughs at 
as well. Nobody a hundred years old fathers a child and no woman in her 90s is going to give birth. (laughs) But God intervenes and God keeps his promise because that's what he does. Abraham becomes the father, the father of a great nation. He does that by first becoming the father of Isaac, who's the son of promise, the one who was promised. And we say, well, that's good. Solve the problem. Now we're going to have this great nation. Everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be. But no, Sarah is jealous of Hagar and Ishmael, and, and they're sent out into the desert, and and God meets with them as well. And he makes a nation out of Ishmael, and he makes a great nation out of Isaac. He's in that. That's what he does. God also tests Abram. He tests Abram's faith. He says to Abraham, Take Isaac, your beloved son, the son of the promise, the son who I've given you, and come take him out into the desert and sacrifice him to me. Abram had left his home to journey to a place where God would show him, by the way. Like, which means you go down to the end of your driveway and say, now where, God? Like, like there's not, I mean, I'm going to drive to San Diego. I know uh, I got to take 10 and then take the little bypass because who wants to go through Phoenix? And, and then you're going to go and you're going to get on eight, and you're going to get, like, we, we know where we're going. We know how to get there. Um, we may get lost when we get there, but we're there. We know how to get there, right? Um, no, Abraham just goes because God had called him to go, and now um, God tells him to take this son that he loves and to sacrifice him. And then at the last possible second, when Abram is going to do what God called him to do and told him to do, God says, stop, and withholds his hand and offers a substitute. It's really important to know that. That there is something else that is offered as a sacrifice in place of Isaac. God provides the lamb, the ram, the sacrificial animal. And Isaac grows up and Abraham dies and Isaac marries Rebekah and he fathers twin boys, Jacob, whose name means the liar. How would you like to have that for your name? Hey, hi, liar. How are you? Like, uh, how's things going, right? Liar. Yeah, a bunch of liars. Uh, A whole clan of liars, right? Um, Jacob the liar, right? And Esau, who's, by the way, ruddy, and so he's kind of called red. That's Esau means red or ruddy. Um, and and, they're, and they, they're twins, and they contend with each other. Even in the womb, they're, they're arguing and fighting <laughs> like, uh, because we're sinners. And they wrestle, and, and Jacob, the younger, is... is wants Isaac's blessing, so he deceives his father, or wants uh, uh, Esau, uh, Jacob wants Esau's blessing, and so with his mother's help, 
and because Esau sells his birthright, um, he steals the birthright. He receives Isaac's blessing. Jacob, the liar, becomes one of God's chosen patriarchs to lead his great nation, to become this great nation. Blessings are really important. God blesses and he curses and it's his right to do that because he's God. Jacob grows up and he marries, he longs to marry Rachel, this beautiful woman, and he ends up having to marry his older, her older sister first, and he has to work for a long time to get them, and so there's Leah and Rachel, and, and he, um, and he's at odds with his brother Esau, and, um, and he too fathers children, he fathers many children, twelve of them, some with Leah, some with Rachel, some with servants. He too has a great deal of difficulty simply trusting God, that God would do what God says he's going to do. He's divided from his brother, but then there's this moment of reconciliation, and when he comes back to reconcile with his brother, he's terrified because he knows Esau will kill him. And, and then... There's this ladder that reaches the sky and in a dream he goes and he wrestles with God and God changes him and changes his name to Israel, which is where we get Israelites, which become God's people. He has multiple children with multiple wives and God blesses him despite all the manipulation and all the lying and all the cheating Because God blesses us as he chooses to. The twelve sons become the twelve tribes. Joseph, the one, the child that he has with his beloved Rachel, becomes um, his, becomes uh, Jacob's favorite. He pours out special blessings on him. He makes a coat of many colors that he gives him, gives to Joseph, and there's a war amongst the brothers. They can't stand that favorites are being played. I have two sons, both of them think that the other one's the favorite, right? We do that, right? We and, and I always believed that mom liked Mark best, right? Um, my brother Mark, uh, he, I don't know, I just think he, she did. Um, favorites. We think that's true. Well, in here, they're pretty, they're pretty nasty about it. They want to kill their brother. And then the older brother says, no, we'll sell him to slave traders which they do. And Joseph goes to Egypt into slavery, and there in Egypt, in, in the midst of his slavery, he, um, 
he becomes noticed. He rejects the path of sin. He rejects the path of power, but he's given power anyway. And because of that, he rises to be a person of great authority and position and status. He's second in command behind Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And then when there's famine in the land where Jacob and and Joseph's brothers are all uh, living, they, they... they can come to Egypt and they, and they receive grain and wine and good things so they can live and survive. And it's the brother Joseph who recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Uh, you can imagine the last time we saw you, he was down in a well as a kid and now he's this second in command of all of Egypt. And God uses calamity to create good for his people. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And God makes a promise. God promises a promised land, the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that's rich and delightful and has everything that his people need and want and desire. And God promises that land. And that's kind of where Genesis wraps up. God's people gather together in Egypt in these little tribes waiting, wondering, Imagining, believing, trusting in a promised land, a place where God will bring them. So what are your takeaways? A couple takeaways. First of all, know your place. (laughs) You're the creature, not the creator. That's hard. Know your place. Know that sin is death. Sin leads to death. Know that. Know that God hates sin. He despises sin. He will not let it stand. Know God's intentionality. When God decides he will do something, he will do it. He keeps his promises. Know God keeps his promises. Know God loves you. He is in relationship with you. Whether you recognize it or not, he loves you. And know that God is taking you places you can't see. One of the one of the hardest things for me when I read through Genesis, is to understand um, the incredible story that God unfolds and all that it takes um, for his plan to bring us to himself. It's really, really difficult for me to wrap my head around that. And I get arrogant 
and I get prideful, and I think that I have power and control and that I can be my own God. And somehow when I see that picture of little planet Earth as an earth rise from the moon, it reminds me of just how great our God is. So I went out and I got a bunch of little blue marbles and you can come up and you can take one of these little marbles, they're little glass marbles, and put it somewhere where you'll be reminded regularly that you live on a speck, on a speck, on a speck, on a speck. And that God loves you and he watches over you and he has a plan and he completes his plan and he makes covenant and he keeps his promises. So when you come, take one if you want. Stick it in your pocket. Put it by your mirror. Set it by the kitchen stove. Put it somewhere where you'll see it and know who God is.